Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. We're going to start today's show with a man who made his name pursuing happiness. His name is Eric Weiner. He wrote a wonderful book, I guess a, maybe a, a decade ago or five years ago, called The Geography of Bliss. And we're talking to him about that book because it has major legs. It has transformed into two new ventures. Hey, Eric, welcome back to the Fromer Travel Show. Hey, Pauline, great to be with you. So how long ago did did The Geography of Bliss come out? Well, believe it or not, it was 15 years ago. Um, okay, I was right. It was a while ago. Yes, which just means that we're old, I guess. I don't know. But it was <laughs> it was a while ago, and it does have major legs, as you say. Um, it, yeah. It, well, uh, let's talk a little bit about what the book was about. Can you say that in a nutshell? In a nutshell, uh, take unhappy person me, send them off into the world looking for happy places, uh, or at least the secret to happiness, and mix together and produce book about you know what other countries and other places know about happiness that I didn't know, and that honestly we Americans don't know. Uh, that's right. it. That's it in a nutshell. And and you went to the places in the world that, by various standards, were considered the happiest. Like I, I remember, Switzerland was one of them, and one of the reasons was because you can easily get out into nature, and that's what the Swiss do. Plus, they're not braggy folks; they they never tell their neighbors, "Oh, I got a raise," and they don't get flashy cars, so that so that everybody kind of feels good about who they are within society there. Right. I mean, that that was one that I remember. Yeah. And, and regarding the Swiss, they don't really generate a lot of envy. Envy hmm. is very to- right. toxic to happiness. And it's a country with a high level of trust. And that is hugely important for happy places. Um, yeah. And it's a little boring in Switzerland, to be honest, but you're better <laughs> off being a little boring than the opposite extreme of whatever the opposite of boring is. Um, so I was surprised. Yeah. In Europe, it wasn't, uh, you know, France with its, you know, uh, joie de vie or the Italians with Dolce Vita that, that were the happiest, but boring yeah. old Switzerland. Boring old Switzerland, and you went to Bhutan, and you went to a bunch of other places. And as you said, you were a, let's not say unhappy, but maybe curmudgeonly type. Mm. Interestingly, you now have a TV avatar who is also kind of a curmudgeon. Exactly. You have a new TV show coming out based on this book, right? Yes, and starring Rain Wilson, who most people will know as Dwight from The Office, Love him. Um, and what I tell people is Rain uh, is me, only more famous and with more hair, um, both of which <laughs> are true. He's a great guy. He he Look, he has, uh, despite these comedic roles he's played, like Dwight in The Office, he's, you know, struggled with depression, as I have, throughout mm-hmm. his life. And he's been pretty open about that. So I really think he is the perfect person uh, to take on this project. And uh, I'm just excited. It's going to be out on NBC Peacock on May 18th. All five episodes wow. drop May 18th. So it's it's pretty cool, I have to say. So let me ask you, NBC Peacock, that's a streaming service or that's the network? Uh, it's a streaming service. Um, okay. It's NBC's streaming service. And uh, gee, I don't know all the details about subscription and that sort of thing, but <laughs> um, right. but they're having a moment. They had a show called Poker Face, which uh, 
has gotten a lot of attention and uh, the office appears on uh, Peacock. So right. there's a little synergy there. But yeah. um, I don't know, you send your book off to Hollywood. It's like sending your kid off to college, you know, like, gee, like, you know, are they going to be okay? And what if the other kids don't like them? And, and uh, I had a remarkably good experience once this thing took off that I, you know, I've seen the episodes and, and I, I like it. I think it really, they've captured the essence of the book. So can I ask you, did Rain go to Switzerland? He did not. They mixed it up a bit. He does go to Iceland as I did. He went to Thailand. They, it was challenging. Um, they, um, you know, they were going to go to Moldova as I went to Moldova, it being the least happy country in the world as a kind of right. quality check, you know? Uh, <laughs> it was, uh, what do they say in experiments? It was the control group. Um, right. But right. Moldova is in Putin's crosshairs now. It's um, mm, bordering with oh. Ukraine. It just became too dodgy. So they went to Bulgaria, yeah. Bulgaria instead. So they, they mixed it up a bit, um, adding some countries. They also uh, went to Ghana uh, in West Africa. But it's the essence of the book. Um, I was involved as a co-executive producer, a consultant, in effect. And um, and it's, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, and uh, I'm excited. Cool. To how, many, how many episodes are there? Five episodes, okay. each about 50 minutes long. And... You know, it's when I wrote the book, it was just me and my notebook and pen. And of course, when you're doing a TV show, it's, you know, it's Rain and the director sure. and the audio people and the producer. So it's it's hard to have harder, I would say, to have these sort of spontaneous organic moments. But they, they managed to do it um, to sort of get people to forget the cameras are there, which is the tricky part. Right. Well, I got to ask you, I mean, your book came out 15 years ago. It was based on the facts on the ground back then. But as we're hearing about Moldova, which is now, you know, in an area of the world that's dodgy, has happiness shifted in certain not, places? Not, I remember, go ahead. I was going to say, I remember there were some takeaways from the book. I remember you writing that colder places tend to be happier than warmer places because in in warmer places you can just go and pick a fruit off a tree and you don't have to rely on anyone else whereas in colder places people have to be social because it's harder to survive and that sociability actually increases your happiness yes they have to cooperate i would say right. and uh and that's true and you know, I am. I'm saying this in all seriousness. I am surprised at how little my findings have changed in 15 years. Huh. Remember Moldova? I went to because it was the least happy country in the world. Uh, now that they're in Putin's crosshairs, they're even less happy. I'm sure. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. that hasn't changed. Cold, dark places, uh, Scandinavia, Nordic countries, are still the happiest. Um, Finland hmm. just topped out at number one on the most recent UN report. It takes uh, the the fact, Pauline, is it takes a lot to move the happiness needle in one direction or another uh, to either huh. take an unhappy place and make it happier, or a happy place and put a dent in its happiness. Um, and believe it or not, during COVID, there was no discernible drop in global happiness. Um, 
which wow. is kind of remarkable. There but, was in my household, but anyway. Right. I guess they didn't survey your household. but um, <laughs> And I would argue the things that make a place happy also give it the, the tools to weather an unhappy period, um, huh. like being cooperative. Um, Interesting. If you're cooperative during good times, you're cooperative during bad times. If you have a high level level of trust during good times, Hopefully, you have a high level of trust during the tough times well, as well. Here's a here's a, a left field question. Uh, they found that those countries that had a high level of trust in our author- in authorities tended to have lower death rates uh, during COVID. Uh, were the happier countries also the ones where more people avoided the virus? I, I or would. Do you not know? I, I would say I did see that study. Um, and yeah. I think the the trust factor is key. Whether it's happiness per se, I'm not sure. But hmm. um, you know, there's a, there's a interesting survey question. It's purposefully open ended. Overall, most people can be trusted. Do you agree or disagree with that statement? Hmm. So I'm, I'll ask you. Overall, most people. I do you agree or disagree? Totally agree. Absolutely. You agree. Okay, that yeah. makes you in the optimist, happy person category. Um, you know, they asked this question of Americans back in the 1960s, and two-thirds of people said, yes, overall, most people can be trusted. Um, they repeated it um, in the, somewhere in the 2000s, and it flipped, and two-thirds of people said, no, huh. most people cannot oh. be trusted. So it does not bode well oh. for American happiness. Yeah, that's, that's heartbreaking. Oh. Yeah. Well, we know that this TV show will make people happier. <laughs> yeah, uh, I hope it so. will it will hopefully inspire them to visit the places where people are living their best lives. But you're not just giving inspiration. The other leg that this book had was, please and fin- finish this sentence. Uh, a new venture called Bliss Tours. It's purposeful travel, uh, travel in search of happiness with me. That's the idea. Huh? Wow. So are you going to lead every tour? That's the idea. It's a bit of an experiment, but uh-huh. but I think anything worth doing is worth trying, or anything worth trying is worth doing. Uh, first up is Iceland in October of this year, October 15th to 21st, and uh, Iceland was one of the places I wrote about. It was and still is one of the happiest countries in the world, despite their economic speed bumps and other problems they've had. And the idea is, and I don't know if anyone else is doing this, not that I'm aware of, is a trip that is focused, uh, looking at a place through the prism of the science of happiness. So as opposed to just seeing the sites, you're seeing the sites and seeing specific sites and meeting with specific people, specific Icelanders that can help us understand what makes Iceland happy. Interesting. Okay. So how many people will be on the tour? Because I would think in order to interact in a meaningful way with somebody who has this type of knowledge to give you, it, it can't be 60 people. No, we're, we're capping it at, a, at roughly 25, I believe. And we'll be meeting with, we've arranged to meet with, uh, for instance, uh, the former mayor of Iceland, who is a, also a comedian, uh, Jan Nar. And he, <laughs> he was just a comedian and on a lark, he decided to run for mayor and he got elected. Um, that he's since been out of office, but that that's the kind of place Iceland is where they would elect a comedian as mayor of their capital city. 
we'll be meeting with an Icelandic linguist because the Icelandic language is really fascinating and beautiful. It's the closest living language to the old Norse language spoken by the Vikings um, because of the isolation. It's remained relatively pure, if you will. And so we'll be taking a crash course in Icelandic. They don't use borrowed English words as many countries do. Computer is not computer. It's tolva. And they took it all. Tolva. Tolva. And it means literally profit, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, of numbers. So they they reach back a thousand years and find terms that uh, can be applied to modern technology. So we'll be doing that. And, you know, we'll be having fun, too. We'll, be- well yeah, let me ask you. I mean, uh, these all sound fascinating, but if you're going to Iceland for the first time, you probably want to see those massive waterfalls and the geothermal sites. W- will you be doing those as well? And we're doing all that. Because the whole point is to talk about happiness and to be happy. Right. So uh, you talk, you mentioned Iceland and nature, or, I'm sorry, Switzerland and nature earlier. Well, yeah. there's a theory attached to that called biophilia, um, coined by the naturalist E.O. Wilson. And it means basically uh, nature makes us feel good and makes us happier on a very biochemical level. And huh. so we will be seeing the waterfalls and the glaciers and the volcanoes because this is going to juice our happiness. Um, and we'll be soaking in lagoons and we will be, you know, taking a tour of the street art of Reykjavik because Icelanders are, and I think there's a connection here, not only one of the happiest people in the world, they're also among the most creative. They yeah. publish more books per capita than anywhere in the world. So I was just about to mention that. Yeah. So it's, it's not all eat your broccoli at all. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> lots of dessert as well and lots of good food. And yeah, so, that's the idea. So this is the first tour. Do you have others on the horizon or is this just a one and done for now and you'll see how it goes? Uh, to be determined, uh, to put this in TV terms, this is season one and I hope there'll be a season <laughs> two. <laughs> but, well, but one we of the things think. I think you're going to have to deal with, you know, uh, Sartre famously said, hell is other people. Yeah, And I've often found when I've been on tours that there's always one person you just wish you weren't on vacation with. Uh, <laughs> oh, you, how are you going I, you, to you de- just, you gonna you, you just said the that people? You, you said the quiet part out loud. I'm pretty impressed. <laughs> yeah. So how are you going to vet the people oh. to know that they can actually become happier individuals or are you not? I mean, what wow. are you going to do about that part of the equation? Well, that's a really interesting question. You think we should like you know, because there's this happiness test you can take, which measures your happiness on a scale of one to 10. Should we like make people take a happiness test? Um, well, then you're only helping the people who don't need the exactly. help. Exactly. So maybe we only take unhappy people on the trip. Um, <laughs> My goodness. Um, I don't, oh. No, no. I, it's wide open to happy people, unhappy people alike. Um, you know, in terms of the, the, uh, the, the squeaky wheel on the trip, I think, okay, I'm getting a little philosophical here, but if you're, you know, a tour group is like a microcosm of a, of a culture and it becomes its own sure. culture and you've got to work that out and you've got to make sure that the one squeaky wheel doesn't drown out the, the music of others. So yes. I think that will be one exercise is, how, you know, how do we get along as a group for a week, you know, so... As uh, this is another left field comment, but back when I was an actor, I used to be, I was in an improv group at the Village Gate 
And there was this one woman in the group who was very, who felt, I could tell, felt very competitive with me. She would literally stand in front of me on stage and she would often, you know, block out what I was trying to say. She was very difficult to work with. And I studied with a brilliant man named Paul Sills. He was one of the people who founded Second City Improv. Wow. Uh, and he said to me, make her feel like you think she's just the cat's meow. Make her feel like you think she is the best person on earth. And so I went to a showcase she was doing. I constantly complimented her. And within a week, she stopped standing in front of me on stage. Wow. And to this day, she thinks we're good friends. And and we are at this point, you know. <laughs> I was going to say, she thinks you're good friends. What do you oh think? God, I hope she doesn't hear this, but... <laughs> Well, that's uh, well, that's up to you. But it's a good story. Yeah. Um, it's a great story. I mean, so there's there's a way of, of figuring out, I guess, what the person's issue is, and then trying to massage. Yeah, there's a similar it. lesson. Is there's something called the Ben Franklin effect, and this is Ben Franklin discovered that if you wanted to ingratiate yourself to someone, you don't do favors for them. You ask them to do favors for you. Um, like you, you ask them to lend you a book as opposed to lending them a book. And that brings you closer, actually. Interesting. Because they become invested in you. I've been thinking a lot about how we have to invest in the people in our lives very mindfully because it it really improves relationships. It does. It's true. So something, something to think about. All right, back to the practical. If people want to take this tour, how how do they find out about it? Where, um, where do they sign they up? They can find out on geoblisstours.com. Uh, um, okay. And, or go to my website, ericweinerbooks.com uh, as well. Um, but uh, yes, geoblisstours, G-E-O, blisstours, all one word, dot com. And yeah. Well, many congratulations, Eric. <laughs> I mean, this is really amazing that that the book, a fifteen year old book, has caused such a flowering of of different projects, and uh, both are very exciting. I'm I'm really thrilled for you. Thank you. It, it's you know you throw a book out into the world and you don't know how it's going to land, and this one um, continues to have legs and continues to walk about the world fifteen years later, and it's yeah. it's pretty amazing, especially in this you know, sort of transient ephemeral world we live in where, yeah. you know, today, this morning's news is old news by this evening. Um, <laughs> it's nice to see this. So thank you so much, Pauline. Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. My pleasure. Continuing today's theme of the mindsets that need to underpin travel. We have Sebastian Modak. He has written a really fascinating article for the Wall Street Journal. It's called Shred Your Bucket List, Why Must-Do Travel Plans Are Ruining Your Vacation. Hey, Sebastian, thank you so much for appearing here on the Fromer Travel Show. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So let me ask you, let's let's define bucket list first. Most people know what it means, but I think it's it's helpful just so we have the terms of what we're speaking about. Yeah, so I was surprised by this. I don't know if you'd be surprised by this or other listeners will be surprised, but bucket list as a term only really kind of 
gained prominence as recently as 2007 when the movie of the same name came out, which was about two people facing terminal illness, trying to check off these things that they wanted to do before they died. Um, and then it kind of really just gained steam from there. And so the idea of the bucket list, conventionally at least, is these are the must-do things before you kick the proverbial bucket. Um, and so, so in travel, it's become this checklist of sorts that I think come from a good place uh, that, you know, this is the way to be fulfilled as a traveler before we face the inevitable. Right. You know, I was reading an article the other day. It said, we're all terminal, so maybe we all have bucket lists. Why do you think this is a problem for travelers? So I think one of the greatest things about travel is how liberating it is, is in how it just opens you up to these experiences that are life-changing and life-affirming. And in a weird way, I do think that a bucket list actually ends up restricting you. Um, and part of the reason of that is that I think because of social media, travel media, and I'm saying this as someone who's part of that world very much, sure. um, a lot of the time our bucket lists end up looking the same. And if you look at hashtag bucket list on Instagram, it's the same things over and over again. It's swimming with dolphins. It's visiting Bali. It's seeing the Northern Lights. And none of these things are bad on their own. But when we all have this kind of hive mind about what it means to be a traveler, I think it actually ends up being more destructive in terms of what it means to travel and what it means to get the most out of travel. It means that people who might not have the means to get to the kind of places that fall into the proverbial bucket list suddenly feel like they're less of a traveler because they're exploring their own backyard or they're, they're huh. traveling to visit family or whatever else. Right. And I think it limits us as travelers and it limits it sort of blocks us off from the serendipity that is the best part of travel. I think in my experience, and the reason I wrote that article, I'm very lucky to have traveled the world many times over. It's part of my job. But the best moments for me are the things that were completely unexpected. It's, it's kind of what I think of as the stuff that happens between the spots on your list that you could never list because you could never predict them happening. And if we think too much about travel as a checklist that we need to check off, we're kind of blocking off the opportunities for that serendipity that I think is really at the heart of the magic of travel. Right. And I guess because so many people are being corralled into having the same bucket list, uh, or bucket lists, I should say, uh, by the travel industry, it's made certain destinations overcrowded, right? Absolutely. And that's another point that I, I've tried to make around the bucket list is that if, you know, a stroll through sun-dappled Venice is on all of our bucket lists, all of a sudden you have the problems of over-tourism there and you have locals being crowded out of the city they once called home. Um, and again, I'm not blaming the traveler here. I think it's very easy to fall into these patterns because you're told that you've got to go to Venice in the summer when everyone's going to Venice. And I think it takes a little bit of creativity. It takes a little bit of courage to try to break out of that and be like, you know what, maybe, maybe I do want to go to Venice, but maybe I can go in the winter and see what that's like when, when huh. you know, the crowds aren't there. Maybe I can yeah. go somewhere else in Italy. You know, I think maybe I can go to Slovenia nearby. Like there's all these things that, that it takes a little bit of creativity, but I think it ends up being much more rewarding because 
It's easier to connect with locals when there aren't huge crowds of tourists. It's easier to have those moments of solitude and, and wonder at the natural world when you're not in a line of, you know, people taking the same exact photograph. So right. I, I think the reward is there if we just push ourselves a little bit to think beyond the conventional bucket list. But if I understand you correctly, you're not saying it's wrong to have goals when you travel or to shape your mindset so that maybe you do create a list. It's just this type of list. So let's let's get into what replaces the bucket list. Yeah, no, I, I don't think it's a problem to have travel goals. I think it's natural to do that. And I think, you know, I think what re- what I'm asking for, what, what I'm hoping for is kind of a critical intervention in how we think of that list. You know, when, when you when you think, okay, I really want to go to this place, stop for a second and say, okay, why do I want to go? Is it because, you know, I've heard about this one place that you were, it's very easy to meet locals and I want to, you know, really indulge in or I really want to immerse myself in this culture, or is it because you saw one photograph on Instagram and you want to take that exact same photograph and you feel the pressure to join this bucket right. list mindset? Um, and I, so I think that that's the first step. Um, but in terms of of what replaces the bucket list, right. I think it's I don't think it's a list. I really don't. I think it's um, making decisions as they as they appear, taking the opportunities as they appear. I think it's making an effort to say, okay, I've got three days. Do I fly to Venice because I've been told I need to do that? Or maybe I just go explore my own backyard and see what happens on a three-day camping trip in, a, in sure. upstate New But York. in the article, I mean, you do give some ways of, I don't know, subbing in other types of lists. Like you, you suggest, instead of just going somewhere go somewhere with an activity in mind, one that will get you deeply into the culture. Like maybe instead of just going to Italy, go to Italy to learn how to cook uh, the way the Italians do, right? Absolutely. And I think I might have misunderstood your question to begin with, but I 100% think there are these kind of mechanisms that you're mentioning to kind of... um, subvert the bucket list in a way. And so, yeah, that's a, that's a great one. I've, I've started to do that, right? I'm trying to plan a trip right now and I don't know where yet, um, but I'd love to learn. I'm big into cycling, road cycling and gravel cycling, but I've never really done any mountain biking. So I want to plan a trip oh. where I use the trip to learn how to mountain bike. And so right. the skill is coming first, not the destination. Um, I think, you know, I kind of mentioned it earlier about going to Venice in the winter, embracing the low season, right? Saying, you know, I don't need to go when everyone else is going. In my experience, I've been in Senegal during the hottest, rainiest time of year. I've been in Calgary in the middle of winter. All these things are are very much the low season. I've had incredible experiences because I find it's so much easier to meet people and it's so much easier to feel like you're living there when you're not in a crowd of tourists. Right. Um, you're also a fan of revisiting destinations. In the piece, you profile somebody who went to Paris for the first time, found that they were disappointed by the experience, and so they went back, which is not the usual <laughs> mindset. If somebody's disappointed, usually they avoid it. But this person went back and back and back and back and felt that they got a really, really deep experience of that incredible city. 100%. And I, I found that when, when I was hearing that story, I found that 
incredibly admirable that she decided to give the place another chance. And not only that, had the mindset to be open enough to put whatever preconceptions she had developed on that first trip aside and take it at face value again and realize that actually there was much to love about Paris. And I've sort of started practicing that too, even as a, you know, this is sort of niche, but even as a travel journalist, I don't think that I'm, you know, I'm looking at going back to Bulgaria this year. I've written about Bulgaria before, um, but it's not one and done. There's so much more to learn. I mean, one of the things, talk about a mindset shift. One of the things that, I don't know if you've experienced this, but one of the things that really sort of gets my goat, so to speak, is when people describe visiting a place as having done the place, right? Uh, yeah. And they say, okay, I went to Europe and I did Italy, did Spain, did Portugal, as if, as if you know, a week in Lisbon means you've done the country of Portugal. And I think that's a mindset thing too. If you think that by checking off a place, you're just completely done with it and it's a waste of your time and money to go back and look a little deeper, I think uh, you're kind of missing some of the greatest joys of travel, which is that feeling that <clears throat> you're really getting to know a culture that's not your own, and that you're, you might be yeah. that tricking yourself into living in a place, that, that tricking yourself into thinking you're living in a place for a little while. And that comes from familiarity and from revisiting and from you know discovering different angles and different facets of a place. And so I'm a sure. huge fan of going back and, and looking deeper at a place that you think you've already quote unquote done. And you also suggest in the article, and I thought this was very smart advice, maybe you do have a bucket list, and on your bucket list is a very famous national park that you know is going to be overloved. And so instead, you go to another place that has many of the same elements as that national park, but that nobody knows about. Totally. And and I think it's telling that I got that piece of advice from... Uh, Emily Pennington is a writer who's been to all of the national parks, right? And her advice was, you know, yeah, Yosemite, Yellowstone, these places are world famous for a reason. But there's, what, 62, 61 national parks? Or 62? I think it might be, well, I don't, yeah, there, there's been some national yeah, monuments added just in the last couple of, of weeks, actually. Right, but that's why I'm not I think sure it's exactly 62 number. national parks, if I'm getting it correctly. Yeah, but of course, that doesn't include like the historic houses right, that are part right. of the national park system. But it's anyway. just to say, you know, there are dozens of options, right? So I think yeah. looking at, being like, okay, yeah, fine, maybe I will go to Yosemite. Maybe I'll go in the low season again to to sort of uh, have a more intimate experience with the place when it's not there's not crowded. But then I'll also look nearby. What else is there? I mean, how, yeah. many, you know, how many beautiful state parks are there that we overlook because we're so focused on national parks? Sure. So much but, to see. but not everybody will have that expertise right. to know what would be a good alternative? So one of your ways of avoiding the bucket list was asking for help. Now, what does that consist of? It's diving into the rich, wonderful world of travel specialists, right? Um, <laughs> I think I was a little bit surprised, but honestly very um, happy to hear from travel specialists that I spoke to for this article that they struggle with the same things, right? That they get people coming to them and saying, I want to go to Bali, period. Or I want to go to Venice, period. Because that's what they've 
you know, not everyone has the time and wherewithal to be researching off the beaten sure. path destination. So you go with what you know and go with what you see on social media and travel media and everything else. And it's their job to say like, okay, yeah, sure, Bali, but have you also looked into or considered Komodo National Park or the island of Sumba or this amazing liveaboard experience you can have um, in the archipelago of Raja Ampat where you're scuba diving and you're... So these are all Indonesian experiences. Exactly. And, and sort of steering people to have experiences away from the conventional, quote unquote, bucket list experience. And in, in, in talking to these travel specialists, I heard again and again that their customers, their guests would go on these trips and come back and be like, thank you so much for steering me. You know, I, I saw Bali for a couple of days, but thank you for steering me towards spending most of my time really off the beaten path and, and experiencing this culture in a way that I could never have done if I had just gone one and done a week in a resort in South Bali, you know? Right. So right. I think it's, uh, you know, one of the travel specialists I talked to said something very interesting where it was like, you know, you wouldn't go to, you, you wouldn't just rely on the internet for medical advice, right? So why do we just rely on the internet for travel advice? There are people hmm. who are specialists who do this day in and day out. Um, yeah. And if you're spending hard-earned money on a big trip, why not get the expertise of someone who has really specialized in this part of the world that you're looking at? Yeah, and I got to make a self-serving co a comment here or get a guidebook. Absolutely. Because our books have to be so thick. You are going to find uh, thoughts and types of experiences and attractions you probably hadn't considered if you buy uh, a guidebook. Absolutely. Now, and I think more and more, those guidebooks, you know, and I hope the stuff that I write, for example, too, you know, that's more digitally based. I hope those stories more and more are veering people towards lesser known experiences and more fulfilling experiences beyond the big ticket destination. Right. So you go to an outside expert, but your last tip was also look deeply into your soul. Is there something very, very personal that you want to pursue? And you give a lovely example involving a Belgium. Uh, can you can you tell that story? Yeah, so that this was another great piece of feedback I got when I was kind of soliciting bucket list stories. And this was from a, a writer in New York who told me that growing up in, in Lagos, she would get these little juice boxes. And on the juice boxes, you could collect these little stickers that had world landmarks on them. And so she had a kind of scrapbook of all these stickers. But her favorite one was, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, the Atomium or the Atomium? I think it's the Atomium. Atomium. Yeah, I think you're right. This giant structure on the outskirts of Brussels that's shaped like a like an atom, like a molecule, not you know the Taj Mahal or the Eiffel Tower in terms of bucket list landmarks. But for her, it had this really sentimental value of you know being a kid staring at this sticker, dreaming of traveling the world, and then she finally is able to. So she said one of her most fulfilling trips was going to Brussels and seeing the Atomium, this yeah. giant three hundred foot tall molecule. And how it even like brought her to the point of tears. And so like that's huh. that's someone who's really looking deep and like thinking about what's important to them and finding the really fine, call it a bucket list, but at least it's a intensely personal bucket list. It's not one that can right. be replicated. It's not one that's going to look like anyone else's. It's really about you and who you are and who you've become as a traveler. 
Yeah. You you also interviewed some interesting travelers. And what I loved were a couple of people took what I would say are clearly defined bucket list vacations. But what they loved about them was the stuff on the way to the bucket list destination, like uh, Jessica Nabongo, who's been on this show. She actually wrote a terrific book called The Catch Me If You Can, A One Woman's Journey to Every Country in the World, which, which Nat Geo published. And she said, yes, she went to Machu Picchu, but that wasn't what floated her boat. It was what it was the hopping off point to to Machu Picchu, which is the incredible city of Cusco. Exactly, and she's you know she was saying that part of the reason for that was because by the time she got to Machu Picchu, she had seen so many photographs of Machu Picchu, right? Because it's such a, <laughs> right. a present thing in our collective <laughs> conscience of travel um, that she was like, oh, it's incredible, but it's also kind of like the pictures while right. the way to Machu Picchu, her journey there, her time in Cusco, Cusco, her time, you know, driving to catch the train and seeing the sacred Valley, that was all new to her. And that, that became what stuck with her when she finally left Peru and thought back on that trip. Yeah. I, I found really insightful that, you know, mm-hmm. being open to experiencing that, the journey on the way, the things in the quote unquote periphery of the bucket list experience can actually be the most impactful part of the trip. Absolutely. Well, it's a really lovely article. Once again, it's called Shred Your Bucket List. Thank you so much, Sebastian, for appearing here on the Fromer Travel Show. Thanks so much for having me. And we've reached the end of this week's show. As always, I thank you so much for listening. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. I'll see you next week. the chance